All right, if you'll open up to Colossians chapter 3, for many of you, you know that we've been walking on Wednesday nights through the book of Colossians, and uh, we were going nine weeks, and obviously uh, I didn't speak fast enough, uh, so I am going to share a little bit more of Colossians today. We're going to be in verse 12 through 17. Just kind of a reminder, verse, chapters 1 and 2 is the doctrinal statements we see kind of a transition in chapter 3 more into a practical uh, understanding. But we have to stand on those doctrinal understandings, those doctrinal statements, that we are complete in Christ. We are complete in Him. Nothing has to be added. As, he, as Paul was speaking to the people of uh, Colossians, he was saying, or Colossae, he was saying to them, listen, don't be deluded. Don't try to add anything. There's nothing to be added. It's Christ and Christ alone. We see even today how powerful this word is because even today we see people trying to add things. It's Jesus plus this and Jesus plus that. No, it's Jesus and that's it. That settles it. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17. I'm just going to read here and then we'll go back and there's so much here. So we're going to walk as, as long as we can this morning, and uh, we'll see where, how far we get. In verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in, the hearts, in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So we're going to start this morning. In verses 12, 13, and 14, we see the continuation of what it looks like to put on the new self. If you go back uh, just a few verses, you see him, Paul say, Hey, take off the old self, put on the new self. And in verse 10 of Colossians 3, I want you to, to be reminded of this. It says that you are to put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So the new self is in the image of Christ or in the image of God. And so then we see also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, I want to just kind of remind you so you'll remember this. It says, and put on the new self which is in the likeness of of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So let's just kind of recap for just one second and just remember that when we put on the new self, one, we can't do it without the Holy Spirit through us, but the new self is going to be the attributes. We're going to see the attributes of God. Why? Because it's in the likeness of God. So when we place on the new self and we see these attributes, they're going to reflect Christ. So let's look at some of these attributes that we see here. It says, put on a heart of compassion. Now the word put on or clothe means uh, to literally to clothe yourself, to place on as if you were placing on a jacket. 
The word compassion means mercy. If you're looking at the New King James, it actually, I think, uses the word there of mercy. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, I want you to see this as we're talking about that these are attributes of God. Here it is. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, in verse 5, it says that, that He transformed us from death to life, that He gave us life. It says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together in Christ. So we see that when we place on the new self, compassion or mercy is an attribute of God. One of my favorite verses, and the Lord has allowed me to share it in almost every message of Colossians, is Romans 5.8. We see the mercy of God there, but God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We see that mercy. And so God is calling us to put on mercy and compassion. We can't do that without Christ in us, the hope of glory, which is what we see in Colossians chapter 2. Now in Matthew 25, 34 through 40, and we won't read that today, but I'm just going to share it to you. We see that Jesus says, you know, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. He says, hey, when, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And so I want you to see that God gives us a command to show mercy. But that mercy and compassion can only come forth when we're placing on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. The second one I want you to see, we're going to skip kindness for a second and we're going to go to humility. Humility. When you look up the word humility in the Greek, it means without arrogance or it means humility. Uh, I think that we all understand that. Now we see that attribute in Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Many of y'all have this memorized. It says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, here it is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see the humility, the attribute of Jesus here in Philippians 2. But he also commands us in Matthew 23 verse 12, he says this, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So, we see this attribute of Christ that as we put on the new self, we walk in humility. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Humility is not something that naturally comes forth from us, right? I've seen so many people in this culture that are trying to get ahead, that, that are always pushing themselves up, trying to let people see who they are. Even in the Christian realm, people trying to get ahead. I heard a pastor one time tell me that he was the greatest thing for, for the church today. And I was like, whew, um, I need to pray for you. The attribute that, that we see here is humility, that we empty ourselves and we realize, hey, without Christ, we're nothing. But with Him, by the blood of the Lamb, we've been redeemed. The next three attributes I want to kind of group together for time's sake. There's a lot here. But kindness, gentleness, and patience. The reason I want to group these together is because all three of these are fruit of the Spirit. 
right? Now, we know that fruit of the Spirit only comes forth when the Spirit of God is coming forth through us. We cannot create the fruit of the Spirit on our own power. The only way that we see kindness and patience and gentleness to come forth from our life is when we are yielded to the King. Now, I want you to see just this attribute of God Uh, When it comes to kindness, look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. You're going to see it on the screens. It says this. But when the kindness of, of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, this is what happened. He saved us, not based on our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We see that God's kindness was Jesus on the cross for us that we may have life. And I love the attribute of God's patience. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Oh, but it says right after there that Jesus is coming. And listen, we see the attribute of God, that patience, that He is patiently waiting so that many will come, not wishing for any to perish. So we see these attributes. We see that they are in the the, the likeness of God. We see that it represents Christ. And so when we put on the new self, as Paul is telling them, put on the new self, what you're going to look like is Jesus. Let me ask you this question. When you walk out into this culture and into this world, outside of these doors, because when you walk in here, everything's great, right? No, it's not really great, but sometimes we just smile and keep going because we want to look like, like everything's going well. But when we're walking out, and even when we're in here, the question is, do people see Jesus in you? Do they see the new self, or do they see the old self? Do they see Christ? Hey, let's just, let's just be honest. For those who never come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, you're as close as they're going to see until that judgment day. Do they see Jesus Christ in you? Listen, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God's called us to be His ambassadors, and so He's called us to go make an appeal. How are we making that appeal to people? We're making that appeal because our life has been radically changed. The beauty of it is is that there is no pride when Jesus did it and we didn't. There's no pride, it's all humility when we realize that who we are today, we never could have done on our own. Now, the next two attributes I want to take some time and really walk through. Because we could teach a five, six, seven week lesson on these. In verse, four, uh, verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. So also should you. So here Paul is already setting the groundwork of forgiveness. He says, hey, Just as Jesus forgave you, so also you should forgive others. Now let's just be honest. Forgiveness is extremely difficult. It's very painful. Why? Because somebody did something against us. Let me just tell you something. When you forgive somebody, that does not say or justify their action. It doesn't say that, hey, you know, I'm forgiving you and so what you did was right. No, if that was the case, then when Jesus forgives us of our sin, then he would be saying, I'm forgiving you and what you did was right. No, no. 
what it says is, is that you're releasing that that is against you and that you're forgiving that person. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 through 15, it says this. It says, for if you forgive others for their trans- or, or, excuse me, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15. But if you do not forgive others, then your, your Father will not forgive your tra- transgressions. What we see here is that it's very selfish for us to say, okay, God, thank you for the forgiveness, but I'm not going to pass that on to anyone else. It's very selfish for us to say, well, well, God, you don't know how bad that person really hurt me, and so you just don't understand. Well, how bad was it for us to walk away from the living God and be dead in our sins? And for Him to say, hey, I love you that much that though you have nothing to do with me, though you are prodigal, though you've spit on me as they did to to Jesus on the cross, though you've nailed me to the cross, hey, I love you that much to offer forgiveness. I love you that much. So when the evil one puts in our minds, well, God doesn't know how bad that person hurt me, or or, this is so much bigger than that, we've got to go back to the cross. Why does Paul say in verse 13, just as the Lord forgave you, He's taking them back to the cross. He's saying, hey, what you did towards Christ was so much greater than anybody could do towards you. And so therefore, forgive. We also see, I want to kind of develop this just a little bit further. Understand, as I shared earlier, that forgiveness does not mean uh, that the other party was justified. Jesus forgave us and that doesn't approve our sin. It just satisfies the decree against us. In Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 22, it tells us how often we should forgive. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother, uh, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Man, he was like, you know, I'm going to do more than one. I'm going to go seven times? And Jesus says, oh, oh, oh no. He says, uh, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Whoa. You know why that is? is because forgiveness is not an emotion. It's not an emotion. 99.9% of the time when I am giving forgiveness towards somebody who said something or did something against me or my family or whatever, it's not like, yes, this is exciting. Woo! No, it's an action. It's me taking that action to forgive that person. And here's what happens. Have you ever forgave somebody and woke up the next morning and still frustrated with them? Nobody's been there? So you offer that forgiveness. Like you walked in that. You walked in the Spirit of God in you. And you were like, hey, I forgive you. And you wake up and you're like, oh, I still don't like that person. I still don't like what they did. Oh, it really hurts. And this is why God speaks this. Why Jesus speaks this. So 70 times 7, there's going to come a place and time where you literally have totally let that go and it's gone. But we have to continue to walk in that forgiveness. I know that this is, this is the best example that the Lord put on my heart. Many of y'all know that uh, I was diagnosed with a non-curable muscle disease. Had it for two and a half, three years. And then the Lord healed me miraculously. This July is seven years medicine-free, symptom-free for the glory of God. Amen. But I ran an Ironman. Many of y'all know that. And I trained 11 months, 20 hours a week. That was uh, wild and and. But a lot of people ask me, what is it like, David, to be healed and to walk in healing? And I told him, I said, I said, 
it's a lot more difficult than you realize. And they were like, what? I thought you'd be like so excited. And I said, well, you know, like if, if, there, if there was an external like situation that was fixed, I could see it every day. But because myasthenia gravis is an internal disease, every time I would get out to go run and take a step, I would say, what if it came back? I would get five miles away from the house because I had to learn how to run a marathon, 26.2 miles, and I would get 10 miles or five miles, 10 miles away from the house, and my heart would say, you do realize if that disease comes back, then, then your diaphragm, you know, it's not going to work, and you're going to suffocate right here and go home. But over about four, it took almost four years for me to walk in that faith, for me to say, you know what, I'm good. But it was a day-by-day action. Every time I would get out there to train, that thought went through my head. Just as when we have forgiven somebody, we wake up the next day and that thought's right back there in our head. And guess what? We have to get to that place where we say, hey, I'm going to forgive them today. I'm going to walk in that 70 times 7. It took me over four years of my life for those thoughts not to just come after me whenever I'd go bike or ride or swim preparing for the Ironman. It was the scariest thing that I did. But every time I took a step, I said, God, you've got to grow that faith in me. I'm trusting you. Some people say, well, David, you were healed. You should have had great faith. Listen, I'm human. I have the flesh in me. And the flesh rises up and says, well, what if? Well, what if? And so we've got to, in forgiveness, realize that we're going to con- it's going to continue to be that, that, that fight inside of you. And we have to continue to lay it down and continue to seek forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 5, 23 through 24, it tells us how urgent it is to seek forgiveness. It says this, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and, and, and there remember that your brothers has something against you, it says in verse 24, Leave your offering there before the altar first. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. Yo, this is urgent. I'll never forget being a high school student under Jack Hester's ministry. And before we would take communion at, at summer camp, which we weren't allowed to have cell phones. I don't even know if back then we even had cell phones. I don't remember um, that was a little while ago. But he would tell us, listen, before you take communion and before we go any further, if there is something between you and a brother in Christ, go deal with it now. Because this is urgent. Why? Have you ever had a, a frustrating situation that you're angry or upset with somebody and you walk into church and, and you're, you're singing and all you can think about is what's taking place? That's why God says, hey, leave it. Go take care of it and come back. Why? Because it will attack your mental emotions and it will hold on to you and you'll miss out on what you're doing and ultimately you'll do the sacrifice out of tradition or just out of doing it and miss the whole purpose behind it. It affects who we are. We start to build bitterness and anger and frustration and so it's urgent for us to seek forgiveness. I've shared this before. I'm going to share it with you again because the Holy Spirit has put on my heart to do it. But when I was at Canacook Camps, which I love Canacook Camps, I, many of y'all know that, I, I just dear to my heart, met my wife there, just transformed my life. But I'll never forget Dr. Joe White saying, you know, that forgiveness is different than the word sorry. When you have a wreck and it was an accident, then you should be sorry. I mean, you're sorry about the fact that you had that wreck, that was an accident. But when you do something against a brother, it's not that you're sorry, you should seek forgiveness. 
He always said that if you come up to him and say, hey, I'm sorry for what I did again, he, should, he would say back to you, well, you should be sorry. Because what he's saying is, is that when you say you're sorry to somebody, you're still holding uh, the, the reins. You're still kind of keeping yourself in control. Well, how sorry are you? Are you totally sorry? You know, but when you look at somebody and say, hey, I have offended you, I have hurt you, I have done something against you, will you forgive me? In that moment, guess what you've done? You've humbled yourself and laid it back out before them. It's now completely theirs. You're not holding on to a piece of it. You're not trying to save face or you're not trying, you're, you're saying, hey, will you forgive me? And let me just tell you, that's difficult. Try doing that to your child or even your bride or your husband. Going up to them and saying, hey, you know, it's very easy for us to say, I'm sorry. But have you ever said, hey, will you forgive me for the way that I did this or that? It changes the whole playing field. But you know what's so beautiful is that in that humility, there is so much unity that grows back together. There's just the presence of the living God in that, that two people begin to, to, to truly work through that difference. And there truly is forgiveness. The last thing I want you to see on forgiveness is this. In Luke 17, 3 through 4, this is, this is tough. When I was reading this the other night, I was like, Lord, this is difficult. It says, be on your guard. If your brother sins and re- rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And then it says this, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. Wow. God's called us to live in total forgiveness, like to totally forgive people, to continue to walk in forgiveness. You know why? Because God knows what that does inside of us when we're unforgiving. He knows what it does inside of us. It builds anger. It builds resentment. And when that is not taken care of, I've seen it stated this way. When somebody is unforgiving or holding something inside, it's like pouring your enemy poison and you drinking it. When you're unforgiving and you're holding on to all this stuff inside, it begins to build anger and bitterness and hurt. And guess what happens? It's keeping you captive. I don't know where you're at today, but the Lord obviously wanted me to speak that. Maybe you're captive. And maybe what you needed to hear is that when you give forgiveness, and when you truly forgive somebody 70 times 7, that doesn't mean that what they did was right. It means that you're releasing that debt or decree what they've done against you, just as what Jesus did for us. Let's go to verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. All right, so we've got to stop here for a minute. I, I, ooh, this, this verse right here we could talk about all week long. I don't know if y'all will be here all week, but, but we'll talk on it all week. Obviously, we know in Matthew 22... 36 through 40 is the, what is the greatest commandment? It says this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says in verse 7, uh, 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. Here's what we see here, y'all is that it has to be rooted in love. It has to be rooted in love. Now let me just kind of show you. It says in here in verse 15, 
it says, excuse me, in verse 14, beyond all these things or above all these things, the most important, put on love, which is in the perfect bond of unity. So let me just kind of show you what the Holy Spirit put on my heart as I was pinning all this out. Love is the building blocks for a relationship, right? I mean, if you, when you love somebody, you're going to build a relationship with that person, okay? Friendship. Um, and then that friendship or that relationship builds community, all right? When you have relationship, you build community, so multiple people within a community, and community builds unity. So love allows relationships to take place, which allows community to take place, and community builds unity. Where there is no community, there is no unity. Let me just say that again. Where there is no community, there is no unity, right? So let me just explain that. When somebody knows that, they, that, that somebody loves them, then guess what happens? They build that relationship, there's community with each other. And so when, when you go to, to share, hey, the truth of the Word of God, let's say somebody, a friend of mine who, who I've poured into and I've built community with and, I, and, 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 and he knows that I love him and he's walking in sin, guess what happens? It's a whole lot easier because of that relationship for me to come and to speak truth into his life. You want to know why church discipline doesn't work? It works biblically. But the reason you don't see church discipline that often is because there's no community. There's no community. People are afraid to go speak that to somebody because they don't know how they'll take it. Well, if you've built a friendship, a relationship built on love, then you know that they, they're going to trust you and you can speak that into their lives. The other thing the Lord has put on my heart is that when you truly build community, you will rarely, rarely, you will rarely see church discipline. Rarely. Why? Because when that community comes together and somebody starts to walk, they don't get 10, 15 feet steps away into sin. As soon as they see that, the love of the community comes around and the person is pointed back to the truth. So when you see true community that's built on love, and, 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 and love is that building block to the relationship, then guess what happens? You begin to see... You begin to see true community and you begin to see that people are able to speak truth into people's lives. How much easier is it, and, and, and you, may, you may disagree with me, but I think it's a whole lot easier to go and to offer forgiveness when you know that you're in community with somebody because of the love that's there between the two of you. It's a whole lot easier. There's been people in my life where, where maybe I did something just not thinking and I went to seek forgiveness to them. And it was a whole lot easier. Why? Because there was, a, there was love there that what God has called us to, above all these things, put on love. Many of y'all know the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to at least look at verses 1 through 3. It says this. But if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy... And, uh, and know all mysteries and all the knowledge, and I have all faith, so to remove mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Let's go on and read verses 4 through 8, because this is important. Remember, love will build relationships. Relationships build community. Community builds unity. Love is patient. What did we just see earlier? We see patience, the attribute of God and the new self. Love is kind. 
It's not jealous. It doesn't brag and it's not arrogant. It does not act unbecoming. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account wrong suffered forgiveness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Whew! That's strong. When we, above all things, put on love, which we see that we love because what? Christ first loved us. The only way that we can love people the way that Christ loved us is by the Holy Spirit through us. And when we do that, what do we see? We see 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. We're patient with each other. We are kind to each other. We, we hold each other up. We, we support each other. Let me ask you this question. Is there community? here? And I believe the answer to that is yes. But we must continue to build community so that whenever we see a brother or sister struggling, we can go to them. One of the greatest ways that we build community at Luke 418 is through our life groups. Through our life groups. If you're not a member of a life group, I would challenge you to find a place to go and be a part of a life group today. Why? Because you get to build that community and people love, we love you, we care for you, we're here, but you get to build those intimate relationships with each other that help support each other through the trials and tribulations of life. God didn't call us to go through it on our own. Then we go on to verse 15 and we see three commands and I'm going to kind of share these three commands, and then we're going to close. But in verse 15, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, I don't know about y'all, but whenever I think about this, this is where, you know, it's very difficult in your emotions to make sure that you're letting the peace of God rule in your heart. If you're not careful, you'll run with the emotions of fear and worry and you will lose all of the peace that God has placed in your heart. I love what we just sang just a few minutes ago, just about how He is throughout Genesis to Revelation. God is. The Word of God will stand forever. I want you to see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, it says this. I don't know if I gave you the right verse back there. 2 Peter 1, 1-3. through 3. Let me make sure I gave you all the right verse. Yes, start with two actually. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that His divine power... Now, why do we have peace? Here's why we have peace. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory uh, and excellence. So here we see... Here we see that we have peace. Why? Because He's given us everything that we need in life. He's given us everything that we need. So when do we lose our peace? We lose our peace when our eyes get taken off of the one who's given us everything that we need. All of a sudden, our eyes get on our circumstances and our situations. And we start to think, how is God going to come through? 
uh, let me, Lord, let me give you all my plans. I know how to fix this. Here's what we need to do, God. And we start to kind of take our eyes off of the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who's given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, and we say, God, I got this. Isn't it interesting that usually the time that we say, God, I got this, is whenever we really don't know what to do. We're trying to figure it out, and we just don't like sitting there looking at all the waves and the winds, and, 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 and all of a sudden, as we see Peter walking on water, and he turns his eyes, and he sees the waves and the winds, and next thing you know, he starts to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Listen, God gives us peace because he's given us everything that we need. Some of you today need to hold on to that promise. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. And so we don't have to sit there and fret. We don't have to worry. We can sit there and have peace. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. But let me just go a little bit further. We have peace knowing that nothing can take us away from God. God says that he gives us everything that we need for, for life and godliness. We have peace knowing that nothing can take us away from God. Romans eight thirty eight and 39 says this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have peace because nothing can take us away from God. The question is this, do you believe and trust the word of God? Do you believe that the word of God is true? Do you believe that what God says will stand? Can I just tell you that it's, it's stood for over 2,000 plus years? Oh yeah. We go back into the scriptures and we see that they're trying to, to stop the gospel we see them worshiping all these false gods. I mean, how many people even heard a bell today unless you're in a church and they're teaching on, on prophets or, or, excuse me, the things of old? I mean, we don't even hear about Asheroth and Baal and we don't hear about all these Greek and Roman gods anymore unless you're studying history. Why? Because they failed. But the word of God that was being preached... I mean, even uh, when Paul said, Hey, let me just tell you about the unknown God over here. Oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. They tried 2,000 years ago to stop this, but it continued forth. Why? Because the word of God will not fail. It will not. It will stand forever, ever. And let me just tell you something. If, we, if, if the world goes 2,000 more years, which I highly doubt, but I won't be there to know. But if the world goes 2,000 more years, let me just tell you, this will still be there. It will still be there. Because the word of God will not fail. One of the most beautiful things for me is people say, David, how do you know that the word of God is absolute truth? One of the reasons I know is because every promise that God made in the word of God is still true today. The fact that it's still here when everybody has done everything they can to silence it. The evil one has come after the word of God backwards and forwards. And let me just tell you, he can't. The word of God says it. And it's going to stand. So do we have peace knowing that nothing can take us away from God? Do we have peace knowing that, that everything that we need for life and godliness? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, you see this understanding of somebody building a house on uh, shifting sand or somebody building their house on the rock. And I want you to see these first few words. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears the words, these words of mine and act on them make them be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The reason I want you to stop there and see that, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, that's important because the next 
uh, command that he gives them is to let the word of Christ dwell within you. He says that if you hear these words, you act upon these words, then what happens? He says you're building your house on the rock. So in verse 24, let's go to verse 25 there. It says, and the rain fell... The floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded, what? On the rock. It didn't say that the rains and winds wouldn't come. It didn't say you build your house on the rock and and you'll have no issues. It didn't say build your house on on the solid rock of Jesus and and don't worry, the winds are going to come, but around your house it's just going to stop. No. It says the winds, that they will come. Go back to verse 25. It says that the winds, that they, not only will they come, but the winds blew and slammed against the house. Let me ask you this. Do you have peace when the storm comes? The only way that you have peace is if you've built your house on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. But let me just tell you, Because of the emotions of the wind and the rain that comes against the house, it's very easy for us to forget that our foundation is the solid rock of Jesus. And so the evil one will come and say, do you hear the wind? You know, in some storms you can see the walls going in and out. Do you hear the wind? Do you hear the rain? Do you realize this house is about to fall down on top of you? And sometimes we'll forget to go back to this, knowing that we've built it on the foundation of the solid rock of Jesus, and we'll start to say, oh my, what do I need to do? And Jesus is saying, have peace. Have peace. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the circumstances and the tribulations. Why? Because I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the foundation that you built the house upon, it will not fail. So let me ask you this question. What circumstances are you going through? I don't know all the pains and tribulations that they were going through uh, in, in Colossae, but I do know this. Paul was saying, hey, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to come. Things are going to come. But listen, you've got to trust and have peace in Christ. Why? Because He will never fail you. The only time that we have fear and worry come through our lives is when our eyes are off of the Prince of Peace. And so maybe today, whatever circumstances, situations you're going through, maybe you need to turn your eyes back to the Prince of Peace. In Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 7, it says this. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Listen, when those waves are coming and those winds are coming and it's beating against the house, your mind's saying, Okay, I don't get it. I don't get it. The house to my left just fell. The house to my right just fell. But for some reason, this house is still standing. It's beyond all comprehension. It will guard your heart. Why? Because the emotions of the wind and the wave are coming. But when we seek the Lord and put our eyes on Him and cry out to God, what happens? We have peace that surpasses all understanding. And can I give you one side note? I got really excited with this. One other thing I want you to just know about peace is that there's, one, there's an aspect that God will use to defeat, to annihilate, to crush Satan in the end. It says in Romans 16.20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. It says the God of peace will soon crush Satan 
Whew, I don't know, I just I, I had to share that with you at the end of there. we got to hold on to this, y'all. we got to keep our eyes. The culture's only going to get worse. The trials are only going to get more painful. It's only going to continue to degrade. Why? Because they're never going to be satisfied. Sin will never satisfy the culture, so they'll keep pushing it. And the last thing that they want to hear is the truth, because they like the darkness. Because they don't want to have to deal with their darkness. And so it's going to get tougher, it's going to get more painful, but we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And the beautiful thing is, is that it says that we will have peace. The foundation set, it cannot be changed. In verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Let the word dwell within you. Now you all know I have, I have preached on this probably... 10% of the time that I'm up here because I absolutely love this right here. I can't get enough of this. One of my favorite things to do is to study this. And it's not because of my job, it's because I love it. Psalms 119.11, one of the first verses that I ever memorized was that I've hidden your word or I've treasured your word in my heart that I will not sin against you. One of the very first words, Jeremiah 15.16 says this, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight in my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Let me go back for a second. How do you have peace? You keep your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. But how do we get to know Jesus? By letting the word of God richly dwell within us. If we're not getting in this, and you say, I don't have peace, it's like that bumper sticker. No, N-O, Jesus. No, N-O, peace. But if you K-N-O-W, you know Jesus, then you K-N-O-W, peace. You know peace. Do you know Him? Is this the delight of your heart? Do you realize how important this is? Listen, the culture is going to continue to get worse, but this will stand forever. I'm going to hold on to the one thing that doesn't change with the, with the culture. I'm going to stand up here and this is what I believe, 100%. I love in Psalms 119, which I've already told you all before, go read the whole chapter. It's the longest one um, in, in, in the book. But I love just, and I picked out a different portion of it for you today. It says this in verse 33 through 40. It says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statues, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law or the word of God and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Make me walk in the path of your word. For I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimony. And not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. And revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant. As that which produces uh, reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread. For your ordinances, your word, they're good. In verse 40, it says, Behold, I long for your precepts, the word of God. Revive me through your righteousness. Let me ask you this question. Paul gives this command to them. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. Is this in you? Is it in you? Do you wake up and say, God, I want to get in your word. We've got to see that this is Life or death. And then he says also to teach and admonish. Admonish means to instruct or to warn. Second Timothy chapter 3, 16, uh, one of my favorite verses says, All Scripture is inspired or God-breathed 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the most interesting thing about this is that it goes back to that unity. Listen, it's a whole lot easier to teach when you have relationships. That's the reason why I believe that all pastors who are called to be a pastor should be relational. It should be in their heart for them to have a relational desire to get to know the sheep and and not just be up here in in the pulpit, but to be in the ditch with them, running together with them. Because when you're with people, they're going to hear. Why? Because of the unity, because of your love for them, they're going to hear the, the word of Christ that dwells deeply within us as we speak it out. And so for us to speak the truth and for you to hear that and for there to be even a rebuke either, either from me or from you, or, or, or continue, for us to continue in that unity, we must have that relationship. And that's the reason why I believe all pastors should be relational. And then the last command that he gives in verse 17. And this sums up the whole thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, I just want you to know that doesn't just say word and it doesn't just say deed. You know, there's a story out there that says, share the gospel as much as you can, let everybody know about it, and all else fails, use words. I struggle with that because the Scripture says preach the Word. The Scripture says speak the Word. What they're saying in that and helping you understand is is that your actions are very important. But this Scripture right here tells us that it's our Word and our action. James, the book of James, tells us that we must be doers of the Word, not just hearers only. Listen, everything that we do, everything that comes forth from our mouth and every action of our life should represent what? The new self, which is in the image of who? Jesus. The way that we love should be the new self in the image of Jesus. The way that we have kindness should be of the new self which is in Jesus. The way that we show mercy should be of the new self which is in Jesus, the likeness of Christ. And so whatever we say and do should be in representation of the one who has transformed and saved our life. It doesn't say on Sunday mornings. It doesn't say on Wednesday nights. It says whatever you do, in all that you do, all, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything that we do. So let me walk through those three commands and let's pray. Those three commands. Let the peace of God, your eyes have to be on Jesus. Let the word richly dwell within you. You have to find the word. You must, you must fall in love with this thing and put it in your heart. And all that you say and do, do For the name of Jesus, for his name to be glorified.